0: And welcome to another episode of Stanford Cinema, the film discussion podcast where you choose it, I watch it, and we discuss it. As always, I'm your host. My name is Andrew. Thank you very much for listening. Now today, you are catching us for our season four finale of this humble little podcast. And we've had a really great season. We've done 30 episodes, uh, 20 brand new guests to the program, including today's guest, who I will introduce here in just a minute. But... It's been a lot of fun. And and firstly, I do want to thank everybody who has helped make this season happen. Um, My friends, family, the guests, obviously, and most importantly, you. Because without you, this podcast would not exist. So thank you. I greatly, greatly appreciate each and every one of you that do listen. And please continue uh, to support this podcast wherever in the world you are listening to me on. It is very much greatly appreciated. Tell your friends, uh or encourage other people to subscribe. And if you want to, I don't know, if you ever want to leave donations, you can do so on my website at StamperCinema.com. Now for today's episode, we've got a we've got a really good one. We've got not only do we have a fantastic guest joining us, but we're gonna be covering a really, really great film. But first, let's 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 talk about our guests. We've got Chicago-based comedian, slash writer, slash music producer. In Haji Outlaw, Uh, he's great. You're going to love him. He'll be out here in just a minute. And the film that Haji has brought to us is one of my personal, like, all-time favorites. We're going to be covering the 1986 John Carpenter cult classic, Big Trouble in Little China. Yes, yes. Uh, This is a movie I've been wanting to do for a long time. And thankfully, Haji brought it to the table. And so now we can cover it. Now, sidebar. Longtime listeners of this podcast will recall that we've covered a few different John Carpenter titles in the past. We've covered Halloween, we've covered Christine, we've covered The Thing, uh, kind of a lot of ING or ING sounds. So anyway, uh, I'm excited because now we're gonna be covering Big Trouble in Little China. Now, if you are new to this film, I mean, there's really no way to put it. You're just gonna have to check this movie out. If I can attempt to break this movie down, it's kind of like this bonkers action adventure comedy about a truck driver uh, who basically he he wins a bet with one of his buddies. And to ensure that his, his buddy doesn't like welch on the bet, he he accompanies his friend to the airport to pick up his fiance. I mean, it's kind of simple, but basically you've got Jack Burton, who's a truck driver played brilliantly by the Kurt Russell and his buddy Wang. Now Wang, his fiance is arriving in San Francisco and Jack's like, all right, fine, I'll take you to the airport. And as a result, then he'll get his money. But when they get there, this Chinese gang called like the Lords of Death, they kidnap uh, Wang's fiance, as well as this other like Chinese girl. And that's when all freaking hell breaks loose because like Jack Burton finds himself in the middle of like this war between like ancient uh, Chinese uh, like warriors and sorcerers, basically the entire inspiration of the the video game Mortal Kombat, uh, the movie literally has everything, right? Because I mean, you've got lots of humor, uh, Kurt Russell at his absolute best, delivering some of the most quotable dialogue that you'll ever hear in anything. Uh, you'll have fights, you've got like folklore, Chinese mysticism, you've got romance because Ch- uh, Kurt Russell. Um, has a little budding relationship with uh, with the younger uh, Kim Cattrall. Uh, You've got a buddy partnership. Actually, probably the most important buddy partnership is that with Kurt Russell and John Carpenter because I think at this point they had made three films together. I think they would do one or two more after this. But like this movie is a perfect film, at least for my sensibilities. Now, if you know if you were talking to the audiences of like nineteen eighty six, eh, they'd probably disagree because a movie like tanked i mean massively tanked uh didn't even like earn like half of its money back it just didn't do well but as often is the case success isn't necessarily measured in weeks but instead years and big trouble in little china has has gone on to boast a massive cult cult following and um let's just get right into it because Haji and I are going to discuss the this uh, this cult marvel that is big trouble in little china again haji thank you thank you very much for uh, for hopping on the podcast how are you doing man doing pretty good thanks for having me appreciate it oh my god i'm i'm so excited uh, you know we were talking a little bit off air but we you know we went through a few a few different titles and the one that we're going to talk about tonight was one that I was very excited about. So we'll get into it. You know, we're gonna talk a little big trouble in Little China, but before we get to it, I wanna know a little bit about you. So for the listeners, if you wouldn't mind, you know, uh, give us a little Haji in uh 60
1: seconds or less. Sure. Uh basically I'm a comedian, uh writer, and musician. Uh comedy-wise, I started uh with mainly with stand-up comedy in Chicago. Uh, then I from like New York, uh, to LA. I lived there for a while, wrote for the Eric Andre show, uh, wrote some stuff for my guy, Hannibal Burris, um, a few other people, uh, Andre, Hannibal Burris, no big deal. No big deal. Yeah. Yeah. No, 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 just a small little deal. Uh, so wrote for <laughs> that. Uh, so did my own comedy for a while and then musically, uh, a lot of production stuff. Uh, so I'll produce stuff for, uh, cool Keith, uh, Chris crack. Who's a Chicago guy. He's pretty darn dope. My mad, mad Likes him a lot, uh, and I'm hoping uh, the last day or two to do something with Boldy James, He has some open features. Uh, he's out of Detroit, uh, so that's kind of synopsis where I'm at. And I pretty much start, I started in sports playing baseball and kind of weirdly transitioned into becoming a comedian. So I want to talk comedy, but let's okay. I want to talk sports first. So right.
0: you played a little baseball. What you know? What uh, what was your position?
1: It kind of flip flopped. I started as a shortstop in third base from like when I was, I guess, through like, what's what I it like, like, not after T balls, like, what is it, like Pee Wee or whatever?
0: Yeah, uh, yeah, yeah. And then uh, you get
1: through, through like, uh, yeah. Yeah. Through, through Little League, I was like short at third. And then Pony League, same thing, short at third. And I moved from Chicago to Evanston, which is the first suburb north. And I had a really great coach in Chicago. And then I got caught with a bunch of not good coaches. So I was like, I had a growth spurt, so I was like bigger and more athletic. So they kept playing me a pitcher, but I'd pitch and catcher because I was big and I had an arm. Uh, so that's where I was at. And then high school, I played really three and a half years of varsity baseball, playing third. Didn't start pitching until my junior year. The only reason I agreed to pitch was because one of my best friends, Tim, his dad was the pitching coach, and I, and I said I'll pitch if you let me throw my knuckleball. And he's like, okay, you can throw the knuckleball. And so that's the only reason I got into pitching. And in college, all I did was pitch. Um, And I was kind of a weird, like, late bloomer because I had, I didn't really want to pitch and I had not good coaches. So I was a guy who threw, like, low 80s in high school, maybe hit 84, maybe. And then my sophomore year of college, when I was only pitching, I was watching a lot of film and I kind of figured some things out on my own. And all of a sudden, the next year, I I was pumping low to mid-90s. But it was only for, like, maybe two years. And then once again shitty coaches and I was just like okay I'm done with this program and I, I at that point I had DJ turntables I had an MPC I was making music so I was I was pretty much out the game right there
0: I think I retired from baseball I was 15 and I think that was around the time that I saw a curveball for the first time and oh yeah it, it 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 scared me I like I never like really felt my knees buckle um and I just yeah that that was it that was it that was that was the end of my baseball career I, can, I
1: totally. Just quick side story about the curveball. I was that was also my pitch that I hated. But we were playing right after high school. We had American Legion traveling ball. We had a coach named Mitch Stewart. Mitch Stewart used to play for the Braves organization, like minor leagues. Um, but he smoked like two packs a day uh, and had one. He had one lung at the time, and he was still smoking like two packs a day. We're, we're sitting. I'm sitting on the bench for like a second game of doubleheader for this thing. We're getting hammered by this guy who's throwing curveballs just beating us. I'm sitting right next to him. And he and Mitch is calling out the pitches, like from the bench. He's like, curveball, like as it's coming out of <laughs> his hand. And I'm like, I look at him like, what the fuck are you seeing? How can you tell? He's like, you can't tell coming out of his hand it's a curveball. I'm like, no. How can you? You have one lung. You're 60 years old. You have smoke all in your face. And you can like I can't see it." That's when I was like, OK, maybe I shouldn't really be a hitter if this old guy who can barely breathe is picking out curveballs out of a guy's hand.
0: Yeah. Um, what I want to talk a little bit about, and obviously we're going to get into the movie, but, you know, within your bio, obviously, and just even now you talked about comedy. So how did you get into that?
1: Uh, it's, it's kind of a twofold. One that started, first of all, I never wanted to like talk in front of people. I, I was one of those quiet guys. Let me just play sports. I didn't want to do it. But when I was, I don't know, seven or eight years old or something like that, uh, Eddie Murphy came out with Eddie Murphy Raw. And I don't know if you remember that movie. It was oh, in yeah. theaters. I saw Raw and Delirious. Oh, yeah. Okay. I, I never saw Delirious, but uh, well, at least at that point. Um. But Raw came out, and I remember being a little kid at my aunt's place, seeing him on Johnny Carson. And I remember being woken up by the. And I was like, oh, and I woke up, and I was like, oh, it's Eddie Murphy guy that was on here. He had the skinny tie. And I'm like, he's really funny. And he was blowing up. And then I, like, he has a movie coming out. And I asked my mom, can I go see Eddie Murphy? She's like, no. She knew Richard Pryor. She's like, no, there's, you're way too young to go see this. I'm like, oh, darn it. So I was with my dad that weekend. And I don't know if my dad didn't know who Eddie Murphy was or didn't care. I was like, can we go see Eddie Murphy? He's like, eh, yeah, sure. So I went to go, to go see it. And I remember going to the be like, oh, this is so cool. Ten minutes into the movie, I remember being like, I really shouldn't be watching this. And I looked at my dad and he just kind of looked at me and was like, oh, well, we're on the ride now. Like another hour, 15 to go. Uh, so that was kind of my kickoff point for comedy. Uh, the second one was after I graduated from college, uh, I was dating a girl and I remember she had tickets to go see, uh, the roots and I hadn't seen them before, but I was determined at that point. Cause I just got back from like a Christmas party for whatever job I was at. And I remember being like this regular job stuff sucks. And I'd watched comedy for years and I'm like, I might not be that funny, but I can write stuff that as good as those guys. And I was determined to go do the open mic and the open mic was the same night as the roots show. So I told her, I was like, I think I'm gonna to go to this open mic in Orland Park. She's like, you're gonna skip the route to go to an open mic. I was like, Yeah. And that was it. That was it. I started I started doing comedy all the time from there in Chicago.
0: When it comes to things that you're attracted to and what inspires you to tell a good uh, tell a good joke, because obviously, you know, writing uh Eric Andre, you know, like what are what are what are things that you look for? What are what are things that that you look for in terms of this is This is a joke I want to build on. Like, this is some humor. This is something that I observe
1: that I think is funny. Um, And generally, it's kind of uh, hypocrisy or things that kind of don't quite totally make sense to me. Um, Like, just logically, Uh, like I I had a whole joke about white people who have Black Black Lives Matter signs on their lawn. And it just makes me wonder, like, how did you feel about the Black Lives before that sign went up? You know, it's, it, gives, it gives me like room to like hypocrisy. That's that's probably the big thing uh, that like always kind of stirs something. And sometimes weird stuff will just happen where like uh, I have this whole story I've been doing at these like series of shows here in Chicago. It was basically um, I was flying back from Nashville for this job to Chicago and I took an edible on the plane uh, right before because it was like we're flying. We're supposed to leave at 5 p.m. on Friday, end up being seven because the flight was delayed. And there was a crash at O'Hare, so we were literally, yeah, no one heard about this. We were one minute away from landing. The pilot told us we were like, I'm, I'm like perfectly high, an hour and a half into my edible. I'm seeing houses, wheels come down, and like the engine just kick on me, go back up. And I started freaking out. Guy across the aisles like shows me his phone. He's like, Yeah, there was a crash. Find out later it was a corporate jet crash, like less than three miles away from O'Hare. No one died. It was no passengers, one pilot, and the pilot walked away. So it, it, but it turned into like a whole thing where there's, I'm gonna give, I'll give away the joke, but like that's like a story where I was like, okay, this is too good of a story uh, to just turn down. Uh, and like, it's, it's, it's a bunch of elements where like one guy on the plane, we had to go to Milwaukee, one guy on the plane like got into with the flight attendant, and I said it was like a proud boy versus a Karen situation, like they were going at it. <laughs> uh, there was like a six foot five white guy, who's like 50 years old in the middle seat, and like, and I, was like, and I was like, what the... Heck? And he was getting ornery about like, oh, I'm not going to get a Hertz car. And I'm like, dude, you're like, you've really wasted your white male over six foot four. So on a middle seat, on a middle seat, and you're complaining now what have you been doing with your whole life? So there's a bunch of elements. So like that kind of stuff also like into like hmm. just funny situations. Yeah.
0: Now, just because you're bringing that up, I'm, you know, I apologize. This just came into my head. But when it comes to making jokes about just how insane uh, white people are because we're fucking crazy. Uh, Who (laughs) enjoys that brand of humor more? Do you find that black people enjoy white people being crazy? Or do you think white people enjoy? Yeah, we're fucking nuts. Like, do you do you see um, are you are you able to kind of get like can can white people appreciate uh, a black person making fun of white people? Like what are what what have you observed
1: in your in your tenure? I would say white people enjoy hearing black people talk about white people 60%, or 60 percent or 60, 40, as far as like the majority of the time they enjoy it, like black audiences tend to more be like, yeah, we kind of knew that we, we, we witnessed this. It's, it's not that all that impressive to us. Mm-hmm. But I'd say. For like white people, white audience, white people doing crazy stuff, like that, it goes better off on white audience, yeah, in general. Not by much, but by a little bit.
0: Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, we're goofy people. Mm-hmm. But that is not what we're talking about. We are going to talk about a very, very not goofy, but yet very, very goofy, weird-ass movie from the 1980s done mm-hmm. by legendary filmmaker in uh, John Carpenter, um, starring Kurt Russell. And we're going to talk a little um, Big Trouble in Little China. So, Haji, why did you want to talk about this film?
1: Uh, it's one of my all time favorite 80s movies, just movies in general. I love John Carpenter, what he's done. I love the fact he scored all of his movies himself with his own music. And like I every year, like I remember seeing in the 80s and being like, this is great. And I, I, every few years, I'd watch it again and again, and it still holds up. And the thing that always like perturbs me is like he doesn't really like the movie. He talks about that that was his last studio. He's like, I'm done with studios. I heard they had to rush talking about Eddie Murphy. They they rushed him on the movie because he was competing with The Golden Child, which Golden had the same title. thing. Yeah, it was competing for the same thing. It was like this kind of kung fu mysticism area. Mm-hmm. So they they made his schedule really tight. And I was just like. Uh, you don't like this movie and I love it. So there's a lot of elements to it. Just have me loving the Jack Burton character, which is basically a play on uh John Wayne. Yeah, It's just great. Yeah. yeah. It's everything about it's great. Yeah. So Hachi,
0: do you remember the first time you saw like one of the questions, uh, because of the fact that I bring this up because I remember listening to an interview and it was actually a Conan O'Brien interview and he was interviewing, uh, who was it? it? He was interviewing lead singer of Smashing Pumpkins, and and um, the, the lead singer of Smashing Pumpkins was talking about the fact that he's got like a a photographic memory when it comes to music. He can remember the first time he heard a song, not just what he was doing, the emotional response that he had. He's able to oh, wow. complete like picture. Uh, Billy Corgan is the 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 oh, songwriter. Yeah. and. And I was thinking about that when I was listening to that podcast. And I'm like, I, I kind of do that with films. Mm. Many films I can relate to. I saw the movie theater. But when this movie came out, it was 1986. So I was like seven. But I do remember the first time I saw it. I remember watching it with my father. I remember thinking Kurt Russell. This was actually the first film I ever saw with Kurt Russell. And mm. just thinking, this is the coolest motherfucker alive. And well. he had the, the mid-80s mullet. Uh, He had these weird sayings that he's doing, and uh, I just remember thinking that, I don't know, for a seven-year-old kid, I thought, like, Jack Burton was the tops. But I'm just kind of curious, do you remember the first time you saw this film? Like, where you were, how old you are, whether you were seven or 17 or 27, whatever it was.
1: Uh, I don't remember the exact, I remember it was, I think I saw it either on, I, I think I saw it at my friend Bobby's place on Probably on VHS, hmm. if I'm, I'm pretty sure I I can remember, I can actually similar. I can remember the first time I ever saw the movie Predator, which came out a year later yeah. in 87, at my friend Bobby's place on VHS. And I remember seeing it, seeing the opening, being like, holy crap, what is this? But I'm, I'm pretty sure I was at Bobby's place, Bobby and his older brother Spencer. I'm pretty sure that because I remember I remember seeing that opening scene. And I, if I remember right, I was in their basement watching it, just hearing that music in that that big, you know, 18-wheeler truck the Jack Burton Express, the Pork Chop Express, yeah. driving up the street. Yeah, I, that, that part I definitely remember. I'm 90% sure I was at Bobby's house, yeah. Mm-hmm. When
0: you look at this film, we're gonna have a whole conversation about this movie. What mm-hmm. is it about this movie that you're like, you know what, I'd like to do a conversation about this film. Why Why this film?
1: Several elements. The first movies I ever really watched were kung fu movies. Like those were the first things I I, I remember ever seeing like in Chicago. We had a thing on Sundays, Channel 66, called Samurai Sunday, where you could watch like three Kung Fu movies in a row. And I used to rent them, even on Betamax. Those are the things I rent. So anything with Kung Fu, I was locked in. Uh, and then you add that with the music and then the brashness of Jack Burton, the character. And then you got wild magic stuff happening with low Pan. It, it just had like every possible element that I could ever want in a movie. And it had the comedy because Jack Burton was like, you would think he'd be like the hero and be tough, but he's mainly just like the kind of goofball who gets into situations and somehow gets out of it <laughs> by no like greatness of his own, but like kind of stumbling out of it. Uh, except for like every once in a while, you know, his, he'd have his Cracker Jack timing or whatnot. And he'd be <laughs> like, oh, oh, he pulled he pulled one out of his ass. Okay. But like that, that's, it still had, had comedy and Kung Fu, which are like two areas that I just love.
0: Why this movie for me is just so freaking like crazy is the movie literally has everything right you've got humor and you've got humor in like folds of ways that you've never really seen in a john carpenter film and even even in the thing which is like as serious as a heart attack there are moments kind of humorous in the movie right uh with escape from new york but this movie like i'm not going to call the movie a comedy because it's not but There's so much fucking humor in this movie, right? So you've got all of that. You've got this whole idea of this weird folklore and this uh, Chinese mysticism that exists. There's a little bit of romance uh, that's going on. You've got uh, like insanely quotable dialogue, you know, like just insanely quotable dialogue. Yeah. You've got this buddy-buddy partnership. But when I think of the buddy-buddy partnership, yes, you've got, you know, you've got Jack Barton and his buddy, but really I look at as you've got another partnership between Kurt Russell and John Carpenter, because I believe this was like their third film at this point they had done together. They would do one more and granted them coming together was just because of the fact that John Carpenter needed another like big actor, because to your point, uh, we had another movie with a similar concept and they had Eddie Murphy. So it was like, I need oh. a big character. I need somebody. I need something. So he yeah. brought back Kurt Russell and Kurt was like, I don't know about this. I don't know. Like all we have done is fucking bombs. And that's just, this movie was a bomb, you know, this movie. Yeah. And it's so fascinating because I think to date, and it wasn't his first film, but I think to date the only movie that is regarded as a success within the John Carpenter catalog is Halloween. And yet, yeah. we all recognize that John Carpenter is a genius filmmaker. But in in his era, whenever a movie came out, dude, if you wanted if you wanted money to be made, no. don't John Carpenter, because they're gonna fucking they're gonna they're gonna just be obliterated. And this movie, had like a twenty million dollar budget it made like half that at the back bo- at the box office, if that, <laughs> and that wasn't a new story because none of his films, you know, uh, you look at, Oh my God, I can't believe, uh, I can only forgot it with Roddy, Roddy Piper. What the fuck is a movie? Um, Oh, them or um, they live, they live, they live, they live. Yeah, yeah. they live, made nothing, you know, just another example of a movie, uh, that, that he did that just didn't do it. But yet you talk to anybody, um, What was it? TBS had this thing in the 80s and early 90s to mid 90s, like movies for guys who like movies. And it was a whole like campaign. And this was a movie that you would see on TBS like every Friday. And you talk to any guy of a certain age group. Dude, if you are like 28 to like 58 and you reference Big Trouble in Little China, you're going to get like a universal response from men, like, fuck yeah. That movie's (sighs) amazing. Because it is it's like the ultimate like dude movie. It's all in the reflexes. It's all in the reflexes. You know? uh, exactly. Exactly. So, all right, let's let's try to unpack this. When you think this movie, <laughs> and you want to introduce this movie and say, All right, I've got a movie for you. What are what are some of the things that you want to bring to the table when it comes to when it comes to big trouble in Little China?
1: Ooh, um things I want to bring to the table. No, well, the, the kind of sublime one is. I say it's the best role of Kim Cattrall's career. Ooh, that's yeah, bold. I, that's bold. I, it's a that's that's a bold. I, I thought Sex and the City, and like, like, I like, I will still say I stand by because she 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 never disregarded uh, Big Trouble in Little China. She has completely disregarded Sex and the City. Yeah, uh, w- would not return to it. She has a, uh, You know
0: what? To be fair, and uh, not to be fair, but she hasn't even really shat on Mannequin, but. What she's like, uh sex in the city, no. But yeah, yeah, you know, so uh in fact I don't even know if she's ever really shit on porkies. Uh but oh that's right. <laughs> city, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Uh I'm just saying I'm I'm a big Kim Cattrall fan, but no, no, no. I think and I look at her hierarchy, this might be my favorite Kim Cattrall film as well.
1: Yeah, that's 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 point number one. The other thing I would I would say uh little discreet thing was that the, those, those, the three, um, elements or I forgot what their names were. Oh
0: yeah. Those, like, uh, the, the thunder rain and, uh, lightning, lightning. Yeah.
1: Those were the bases, And they said that those are the bases for the mortal Kombat characters. Dude, That was, and I was like, rated, man, that was right. I was like, what? I'm like, ah, I, I couldn't, when I saw it, I was like, Oh my God. That you, you see it completely after you, after you watch it, but you're like, yeah, this is like the basis for another entire franchise film or franchise character and video game. Yeah, yeah, for the listener, uh,
0: I don't mean to interrupt you, Haji, but for the listeners that don't know, there is an entire franchise called Mortal Kombat. And within that franchise, there is a guy that I don't I don't know what you call the hat, but there's this uh god of thunder. His name is Raiden, and he is you know a elemental god that uh his whole inspiration was based on. One of the the characters from Big Trouble in Little China. Yeah,
1: yeah, exactly. Yeah, I, I wish I knew the name for that hat. I know Three Six Mafia had that type. It's like a Thailand type hat or I something. Don't, I, don't, like? I, I don't know it. Yeah, I, I don't sorry. know the name of it, but it, it looks it looks, it looks super cool. Especially because you can't see anyone's eyeballs, but like half you the eyeballs are
0: winning. Three Six Mafia. Do you mean exactly? Yeah, Three Six Mafia.
1: Yeah, from the Sipping on Some <laughs> Scissor video. Respect. Yeah. Yep. Respect. Come on. Uh-huh. <laughs>
0: So okay, I, I didn't mean to interrupt you, but all right, so um, some of the other things that you that you think of when you think of this film?
1: Um, let's see. It was just the Jack Burton character. Uh, I, if I could have one scene, it's the scene where they're about to go in to the was it the White Lotus or whatnot and the, it's raining outside and it's it's Jack Burton comes in from one side, his buddy comes in from the other on frame. They're like, this is gonna take crap for Jack time and Wang. He's like I'm born for. I, I forgot the whole scene, but it's like the way they come in. They come in like it's a commercial. Like they both come in like this. And they talk for a minute, and then they go. That's the perfect scene if you want to just understand who that character is. Uh, that that Jack Bird character that just sums it up in that scene to me perfectly. Uh, well, I'm thinking another big element was uh, it's got a. It's kind of this is a funny part. I forgot his name now, but main the good magic guy who's fighting against Lil Pan. Uh, who's on Jack Burton's side, or Jack Burton's on his side? He's also the father of the Eddie Murphy's love interest in uh, The Golden Child, who's just a filthy guy who writes boogers on him and takes Eddie Murphy's butt. And, and I'm like, they came out the same time, and he played like two roles in the same different so movies.
0: Uh, yeah, he he wiped the boogers, but he was also in. I don't know if you ever saw Tremors, but he was also the guy that managed the shop in Tremors. Uh, before getting like mauled by the the graboids as he wanted to call them. um god damn what is that actor's name but i forgot yeah yeah he was he he did a twofer in this scenario he did yeah. golden child which by the way i think is a, a conversation um because that is a movie because that wasn't an hbo film that was a showtime movie and oh, it was. yeah it was oh, wow, yeah okay. like but yeah like golden child was that was another movie that i watched in like an insane amount at like eight or nine years old love that film yeah yeah, yeah. he he's uh not low pan what was that character's name fuck uh, Egg Chan. Egg Chan. yes yeah yeah. Yes. yeah um for the listeners and you know we we've referenced a lot you know within this movie you've got kurt russell as we've said we have you've got Kim cattrall as we've mentioned Uh, James Hong, who plays Lopan, but Victor Wong is the actor that we're talking about right now, who was in a myriad of freaking films. Um, You know, I I referenced uh, Tremors. Uh, Haji just referenced Golden Child. And of course he's in this movie as well. And for those that are fans of like 1990s movies, James Hong recently was in... Oh, my God, I can't believe I just forgot the name of everything, everything, everywhere, all at once, everything, yep. everywhere, all at once. Or as a movie that I like to think of him, Wayne's World 2, uh, which I think oh, yeah. might cool. be his finest credit that he's ever done. I don't know if you've ever seen Wayne's World 2, but yeah. it's while, one of my yeah. favorite sequels ever made of any film ever. Um, yeah. But, dude, I I just love the idea of just talking like the movie. I don't, I don't think it was ever the intention of John uh, John Carpenter to take this movie seriously. I don't know. Um, I certainly don't hope he did. Uh, I mean, this movie was not a success, and he has the issues with the film. You know, he was not happy with the the visual effects. Yeah. Uh, there were things he wanted to do that they weren't able to do. Uh, he wasn't happy that the studio kind of shortchanged him. And yet I think if memory serves, this is without question the largest budget of any film that he that he had made. Oh, yeah. Um because you look at the thing, the thing is often regarded as like his big picture. But I think that movie had like a two to five million dollar budget. Um <clears throat> you look at Halloween, that movie had less than like oh, less than a million. Less than a million, right? Yeah. Granted you're looking at a different, different era, but <clears throat> Dude, in 1986, he was given roughly like $11, $12 million budget. And no, no, I'm sorry. He was given a $20 million budget. He only oh. made about $11 million in the box office. Oh, yeah. And, you know, he, he talks about this. Weren't, they weren't able to, you know, achieve that. Uh, And there, there are elements of camp. And I don't know. There, there's, there's still something very... Here about this movie, despite the fact of one of the, the lamest bladder gacks, you know, about like bladder, like back in the 80s, there was this whole thing within special effects. They love to blow up something, they were like, All right, they take a face and they blow it up, or they take a finger and they uh, blow it up. And by literally blow it up, they would increase the size and they would blow it literally blow it up. And in this yeah. movie, one of the gods, they do that, they literally yeah. take his face. And blow it up, and it increases the whole body, and just
1: like getting expanding, expanding, expanding.
0: Yeah, yeah. And the 1980s was rife with that shit, dude. Like, if you go to like a lot of 80s movies, you can you probably Google like bladder bladder gag 1980s films, and there are some really really bad ones. And this is a a prime example of one that was not very good because like when that I I forget which uh, which god that was. But yeah, like his whole body explodes, and it's 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 horrible. But yet, it still fucking crushes. Um, yeah, I love watching Jack Burton fight against these different gods, and their are different. Uh, they're little different rituals that they did leading into their their fight scenes.
1: Oh yeah, and I know that, 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 my favorite scene like the big fight where Burton just puts the gun up. He's like, "Let's go!" <laughs> Boom! You're like, oh, he's gonna do something, and all the bricks just hit him in the head. Oh, he's knocked out like the first five minutes. Yeah, <laughs> perfect.
0: Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, I feel like I have kind of like or this conversation. I apologize, but you know, you, you brought this movie up, and this is a movie that mm-hmm. I have seen. I don't know, no fewer than like twenty times. I mean, this is a movie that you, you yeah, bring up, you am going to go into. I try not to do or like make this podcast a quotathon. thon. But if you want to make it a quotathon, I can bring lines, you know, because this movie, when I think of, of films that are quotable, this is one of my favorite most quotable movies. Not to make that quotable, like being like a quotable film makes it a good movie because, you know, sometimes it's a horrible movie. You take the room, you can quote it all fucking day. It's a terrible movie. This movie, yeah. there's an element of camp. There's an element of cheese, but it's still a really good film but it's insanely quotable. Like the dialogue in this movie is is just like, Mwah. there's just so many great bits and
1: lines in this film, which is great for Kurt Russell, because he can just deliver those lines and everyone delivers them really well. And I, I think that's probably the quotable is the reason why The Rock has said that's his favorite movie is Big Trouble in China. And he's been wanting to remake it, which I think is a horrible idea. But I get it because The Rock is great with one liners and I'm like, he would kill in the Jack Burton role. Not the same, but delivering one-liners. I mean that 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 that's basically his old wrestling shtick. I think he yeah. I think he'd do really great at. It.
0: You know, Haji. It's so I, I love that you brought that up because I, I had that in my notes because I am not a big advocate of remakes or sequels because generally I feel like eh, I don't know I don't know I, I feel that it feels almost like a cash grab more times than not, but. Yeah. When I read that The Rock was a big fan of like Jack Burton, like the character and this movie, I couldn't help but wonder what that universe was like because that is that is The Rock it is just a little like not just catchphrase for a catchphrase, but there's he's got that I don't know I, I don't want to say kind of like stage uh, like theatrical element because Jack Burton isn't that but there is something kind of theatrical in the one-liners that he has in the film that would lend itself really well. And it could be like, Oh, no disrespect to uh, the tooth fairy or no disrespect to Mm. the but Mm. this could be, um, you know, the rock creating something diff like a different like franchise that could be like, Oh, that's, that's, that ends a a little bit like more credence, a little more street cred into the rock, being able to do something uh, taking existing IP, but making it his own, I think.
1: Oh, easily. I, I mean, I think, I think he'd actually, he would love to turn into a franchise. And I think that's a great, It's a. it would actually be more of an interesting character because in the, in the actual movie, from little China, you you look at Jack Burton versus like the elements. You're like, he doesn't really stand a chance, but if you put the rock in that role, you're like, 6'4", 250 pounds. you like, he should be able to smoke these guys. And if he starts getting his ass whooped, that's even funnier. Mm-hmm. And so I'm like, if there's a lot of, and it also leans room for like, because I know, I'm sure he's been injured in movies and stuff for a number of times. This gives him a chance to kind of have Pratt Falls be, doesn't have to be like saving the day, but he kind of is, but he gets to this, basically get whooped up like Jackie Chan 90% of the time. So it needs it, it to be a really interesting and fun role because he's so big. And like a guy who can't fight, who's that big. It'd be kind of hilarious.
0: It would be hilarious, especially the fact because that was one of the fun gags in Big Trouble is the fact that uh Kurt Russell gets his ass whooped the entire film, the entire Damn. film. And, you know, I don't know the size of Kurt Russell, but I know that he isn't the size of The Rock. So just seeing, like five you know, 10 or something get, like that. Yeah. See, Just seeing The Rock just get his ass like whooped uh, just by it. By a fucking head or like a weird, like under underground monster, it'd be amusing. It'd be amusing. Oh, yeah. It'd be really fun. Um exactly. yeah. So I I just want to say thank you for saying I, I I want to talk about this movie. Um, because I appreciate anybody wanting to go in there. Uh, but if there's anything that you want to discuss, any if you want to take any side steps and discuss anything about this movie. The floor is your forum. I feel like I said, that I've kind of like yapped on. But dude, this is one of my favorites. So uh if there's yeah. anything you want to discuss, please open up the, you know, um uh,
1: a line of dialogue. There isn't, I'm trying to think there isn't anything about the movie that I don't think we've really touched on that that we that we like really haven't jumped into. I just want to have you ever seen that interview. It was on um, on Robert Rodriguez's network where he's interviewing John Carpenter about his career. I don't know if you've ever, ever seen that interview. No. It's um it's what was that network? I had it. I used to live in LA and it's like a network that Robert Rodriguez started. It, you know, it's only on a, a few number of like uh packages outside of uh, I guess California. But he's sitting an interview and Carpenter's like, I don't know, 70 some odd years old, he's still smoking chain smoking cigarettes the whole time. And he asked him about that movie, and you can see him just get kind of visibly like, I don't really want to talk about this. He starts smoking even harder. He's just like, I just I, I did the best I could with what I had. I'm not proud I don't. Can we talk about anything else? <laughs> and is like, oh, man. okay, but if you get a chance to just just check it out, you see how like like him talking about the thing is is like really awesome. Then I found out Tarantino, that's like that was kind of his basis for doing reservoir dogs. He wanted to have that kind of element of like fear everywhere from reservoir dogs. He said he got from the thing. But like Carpenter talking about the movie is kind of hilarious in itself. Cause it's just like you can see the pain in him about yeah. that movie and what it meant to his career. And it's just like. It's almost chilling when you watch one, like I love that movie so much. And he's just like resigned. It kind of reminds me of Stephen King with like uh seeing the movie The Shining. Yeah. He hates The Shining. And I fucking love that movie. Yeah. I love Kubrick mm-hmm. for doing it. And I, I don't understand why, why Stephen King hates it so much. There's certain elements where I get it, where like he kind of took your took your book and kind of shat on it a little bit. Mm-hmm. And in my opinion, made it better uh with the film. But like it's I, I just don't. It's just hard for me to like wrap my brain around like you you don't like it at this point and I'm like it's 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 great it's just great. Yeah
0: no Haji, you you're all over a few things that I want to uh, kind of discuss right now so I'll start with the John Carpenter element. I I've, I've watched a couple interviews when he when he talks about his work. I've watched interviews where he's talked about other filmmakers like there's this really iconic interview. Where he was on this the set of I want to say Halloween, and they they ask yeah. him what they think of other filmmakers, and he's like, I don't like Brian De Palma, like I I don't like mm-hmm. his films. Uh, they ask him about another filmmaker, I don't like their work. It's just kind of like oh, uh, Close Encounters of the Third Kind, uh, oh, Spielberg, Spielberg. He's Spielberg, like yeah. he's like it's it's fucking self indulgent, it's pretentious. I love Jaws. <laughs> And it, it's just what I love about Carpenter. He's, he's fucking real. He doesn't hold back. He won't hold back about other people's work. He won't hold back about his own stuff.
1: And, he's like Brian Cox, the actor from Succession. Yes, he doesn't He exactly doesn't kill like not Cox. Yeah,
0: yeah 100%. Yeah. Holy shit, that's such a good call. Uh, Brian cool. Cox doesn't hold back. And no. um, there's something very, very real and honest about it. Even if you disagree with what he's saying... I I want that from a filmmaker. I I want that from an artist just to hear that. And Tarantino does that to an extent. Sometimes I just think Tarantino is just fucking crazy, but just hearing just a filmmaker being just like unencumbered, like, I'm just going to tell you, I'm going to, you're asking me, fuck it. You know, I, it's going to make me awkward. I'm going to, but I'm going to share this story. So you mentioned Mm -hmm. that, but I, I loved, just him being on the set of Halloween and he had no idea what Halloween was going to be, you know, no idea, no, no idea that no. it would be regarded in the, the Mount Rushmore of, you know, like uh, of horror films. Horror. Is, yeah. You know? uh, but they, they ask him and he's talking about close encounters being self-indulgent. And <laughs> it's like, when you look at it, I'm like, well, there, there's an element of truth to that. Um, I still love close encounters. And, you know, I respect some of the work that Brian De Palma has done. But it's it just, it, it's a wild thing. So uh, that was one of the things you had mentioned. You had also, yeah, I, f- I forgot it. I've forgotten it. I, there were there were three things you mentioned, but I only remember the John Carpenter interview. Um, yeah, I'm blanking too. I just
1: spat it out, I guess. I don't know.
0: Yeah, 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 yeah. Listeners are like literally shouting, like, you were fucking <laughs> talking about this. I'm sorry. Yeah. I, I've forgotten it. Yeah. Um, but anyway all right fuck it so haji what what are you doing now what what are you working on what, what what's next for you
1: uh, i got a few things like i said the music i'm hoping to hear back from boldy jane for this music to uh, get him on a feature before the end of this year uh so that probably wouldn't be about to out till for another six months or so sometime in 2024 middle of 2024 uh february i got a collection of short stories called uh candlelight meals and the devil's comedy store uh, just some flash fiction short stories that'll be out in February on Amazon. Uh, and then hopefully, fingers crossed, I might have a TV show, a buddy of mine might get picked up and he wants me to write on it. So I, I would hope to be in that, working on that by the spring. Um, that's tentatively titled Pin High, but that's not an official title just yet.
0: Dude, that that's fucking awesome, man. I'm really I'm really happy. I'm really excited for you. So good oh, luck with you. all of that. Um, there is a Node that I, I, I felt compelled to ask you it has nothing to do with anything. I, I, I've been, I've been, I've been told that I need to ask you about your relationship with the TV show friends.
1: So, Oh, Oh, cause are I, I, you, I, are I, you, are I've a
0: friends fan.
1: No, I'm not. I've never seen the show friends. I think I've only seen it maybe in four seconds when I'm switching from one channel to another. Uh, it's one of those shows where like, I don't, I've never understood it. Like I remember <laughs> being in high school, when like Seinfeld was a big thing. And I remember all my white friends were like, you got to watch Seinfeld. And I was like, okay. I gave it like five minutes. And I was like, I don't get it. And I went back to the Jamie Foxx <laughs> show. Uh, but like years later, <laughs> I was in college. I remember I loved Everybody Loves Rain. And the reruns of Seinfeld used to play like right after that. And yeah. so it started over like three months. It was like, all of a sudden, like, okay, this show is okay. Oh, it's pretty good. Like, oh no, this show is great. But friends, never only, only thing I liked out of that show was I thought Lisa Kudrow was funny as hell. Everything else, <laughs> I care nothing. I care nothing.
0: What is the whitest show that you that you watch that you think is funny?
1: Oh, uh, the whitest show I watch it's it was still it'll probably be Seinfeld or Everybody Loves Raymond. Yeah, yeah, and I, I don't know, like it's, uh, for some reason both of those shows are really similar in the fact that like I think the the namesake. Ray Romano and Jerry Seinfeld are probably the worst actors on those shows and are the most interchangeable, while every other character is like, you can't move them. You can't move Raymond's mom or his brother or his dad, the wife. Did you see, like, every time she calls him idiots, like, and everyone else on Seinfeld, you can't move Kramer, you can't move away, you can't move move them around. But like, Jerry, you're like, I could have, you could put another Jerry in there and I'd be okay with it.
0: He's just a comedian, right? you yeah. get rid of Ray Romano whatever it doesn't matter but you get rid of Brad Garrett as his big brother you lose like, Brad Garrett hilarious right you yeah. get rid of uh Jason Alexander as uh Jerry's best friend on it's not yeah. you know you, there's a difference between having professionally trained actors versus a comedian doesn't mean like comedians can still be funny on camera but yeah. the reason why those shows worked is really the truth is ray was the least funny person on the show Jerry, least funny person on his show Mm -hmm. if the show is named after a character and that is the funniest person on the show that's bad writing like that's i think one of the things that made those shows work so well and i'm not the biggest everybody loves raymond although i appreciate the show but the reason why i think that show was so successful because ray romano is the least funny person it was all the other like his family elements made it funny seinfeld jerry jerry was the only reason why he was funny is because he was a shitty actor like oh my god we're just gonna laugh at him but mm-hmm. you looked at the other characters you, you were laughing with them you were laughing with elaine you were laughing with kramer jason alexander's character
1: Oh, yeah. Big time. I mean, it's just those were those characters were so I heard like Kramer was only supposed to be like a one off kind of cameo type of guy. And he killed it so much. You're like, "Eh, keep bringing him back. And like people, they talked about this. He's the reason the show became so internationally big, because he did all the physical comedy, which translate in whatever language you want. That just shows how great of a comedic actor the guy was, because no no one's showing up to watch Jerry do anything. But like anytime Kramer comes on screen, people across the world are like, ha ha, that guy's funny.
0: Yeah. <laughs> um. Last last question, sure. just because it, it it's on it's on your page right here. So yeah. I, I and I I teased it at the outset. So uh, talk to me about OJ. Why 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 are you following OJ these days?
1: Oh, uh, I follow OJ for a number of reasons. Uh, well, number one, when I saw he was on Twitter or X or whatever they're calling now, I was like, I gotta follow him. me. Just as a person. Like I I generally like anti heroes. I love I love villains. And he is like the ultimate villain because he's the most famous double murderer ever. And I've seen the, I saw the OJ versus uh, the people show. That was great. Oh, OJ. with,
0: um, with, uh, with, uh, with Cuba.
1: Yeah. Yeah. With Cuba, Cuba playing them. Uh, yeah. Uh, that was great. And then the OJ made in America is probably one of the five best got series I've probably ever seen in life. It's just like chronicling his perception of the world and his place in it. And like going about his day to day, he's like the most, eloquent, charming, double murderer you're ever going to see. And the thing that kills me is like, he only he only did it once. Like, he only, that's it. Like, if he could just take like t- those 10 minutes out of his life, he's basically just like a rich, famous athlete who occasionally beat his wife. Like, there's like 10,000 of those. But a double murder to get away with it? And then still be charming and still have a, a following? I just, it's like, it's like following Loki, or something yeah. like he's just a villain that, that's what it is to me it's just like he's just a great bad guy and he's nice and he has actually good things to say all the time on his twitter feed. it's <laughs> it's hilarious to me
0: i i don't disagree i don't disagree <laughs> haji oh my god this has been so much fun thank you very much for for spending the past hour with me uh if there's anything that you feel that we've missed uh please say it but i think i think uh this has been a good conversation share a little Definitely. bit uh, about this movie that you love, a movie that I love probably yeah. more than any sane human being should love it. But, mm-hmm. you know, this is, this is right in my fucking wheelhouse. So dude, thank you. Good luck with what's coming for you. And this has been an absolute treat. So thank you. Thank you. Appreciate it. Thank you. Again, thank you so much to Haji Outlaw. Please check him out on Instagram, Twitter, YouTube, etc. cetera. Uh, I'll provide some of his links in the show notes so have a gander over there and of course i'll have some links about the movie that we just discussed and also links on stamper cinema and y'all that's about it for this season i hope you've enjoyed this ride i mean we've covered Some really great films over the over the course of these past 30 episodes. Our top five most downloaded episodes are as follows. We have Starship Troopers was the number one most downloaded episode, followed by Vengeance. Now, Starship Troopers I did with uh, Dylan James Quarles. Vengeance I did with Naomi Beatty. Uh, Number three was a conversation about Freddie Moore. Now, I did that earlier in the year, back in February of last year. Number four was my conversation with Cooper Cherry, where we discussed the 80s film Dune. And then coming in at number five. Oh, that's fun. We had Pirates of the Caribbean, where uh, the conversation that I had with Liz Shipton. And and then rounding out the top 10, uh, we had Gattaca, which also with Dylan James Quarles. We had The Staircase with Marlene Sharp. Uh, we had Defending Your Life, with a, which I have with a screenwriter. And then I had April Fool's Day. And then we actually had our season three finale coming in at number 10 on our most popular downloads from January 1st of last year through New Year's Eve of last year. So anyway, uh, hopefully that was uh, not completely all mass chaos, but that's about it. That's, you know, that that's that's season four. I hope you've enjoyed this ride. Uh, I will return for season five in maybe about a month's time, maybe two, kind of all depends. Not entirely sure, but I think about a month. Now, that may seem like I'm being a little bit vague, and I, I really don't mean to, but uh, full disclosure, your your host here. I'm working on a little something, something. I'm not prepared to kind of discuss it right now, but the intention is over the next month, I'll be busy with this with this project that I'm on, which would normally like kind of like eat up my otherwise dedicated podcasting time. but we're we're gonna see how it goes. because who knows? maybe i I take care of this project really quick, but more likely than not, it's gonna be about a month. So anyway, all that meandering aside, don't worry, I'm gonna be back. But in the interim, I mean, I've got like one hundred and twenty episodes like in the catalog, then you can check out if you haven't done or if you want to revisit them. You know, you can check them out, obviously, on Apple or Spotify, Google, or easily where I have it actually broken up by season on my website at sampercinema.com. So you can check out there. But until next time, thank you again to all the guests, my friends, family, followers, and of course, most importantly, you, the listeners, it's been a great year, and I'm looking forward to season five. So we'll see you again real soon. This is Andrew with Stamper Cinema.